All right, good morning, everybody. This will be my last message for a while, so I hope to give you something to feed on today, and I'm sure you'll be blessed during our absence, and we'll pick up when I get back. Um, if you have your outline, we're going to be at the very bottom of the first page of the outline today. Um, we have been establishing the last few weeks that the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll or book in Revelation chapter 5 is the title deed of the earth. And we've talked about the significance of the, <coughs> the Lamb's actions of not only taking the scroll from its secure place in the right hand of God, but also in opening the seals. And that's what we're beginning to see as we go into Revelation chapter 6. So we kind of introduced that last week. Um, and to set things in context, I'd like to begin by just reading the first eight verses of chapter 6 in Revelation. To set the context. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, these are those four beasts that John saw in chapter 4, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat, upon, sat on him had, un, had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse, that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and, that, and there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. So here we have the Lamb opening the seals. And the first four seals unleash what many understand to be the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A lot of people have used that terminology over the years to refer to a, a, a lot of different things. Some believe this has already been fulfilled in history. Others, like... Even professional wrestlers have used this nomenclature to define their tag teams. But what I find interesting is that when these seals are referred to by the world, they're often called the four horsemen of the apocalypse and not the four horses of the apocalypse. The emphasis is always upon the riders as if the riders are the ones that bring the judgment. When... As I read the Scripture, the emphasis isn't upon the rider. In other words, the active verbs aren't used of the riders. The verbs used of the riders are passive. The active verbs are used of the horses. And it's the horses that bring judgment. We need to understand who these horses belong to 
and who's sending them out. Not the men on top of them. You see, it's the horses that come bringing the men. It's not the men that come driving the horses. So I find it funny how they're referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse when they're presented in actuality as the four horses of the apocalypse bringing the men that are riding or the riders thereupon. I'd like to start out this morning by turning to an Old Testament passage that I think relates to this scene in heaven and helps us understand what these horses are being sent to do. Turn to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah has a similar vision, not of just horses, but of chariots of horses. And these horses are described very much like what John describes here in Revelation chapter 6. In Zechariah 6, we have the first eight verses. Daniel, would you read those for us? And I turned and and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot gristled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. You can actually just stop right there. The the rest of it's interesting, but it's not really significant to my point. What are these horses, my Lord? What are these chariots? And it was revealed to Zechariah by the angel that these are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of the earth. So these horses, these chariots are God's agents that go forth into all the earth. And if you continue to read, you see that the black horses and the white horses are sent into the north country. The grizzled and bay horses are sent toward the south, but they decide to go in throughout. They're given permission later to go throughout the whole earth. And of course, the red horses aren't mentioned again. I'm not exactly sure what the significance is there. But these are God's agents. So you have black, white, red, grizzled and bay or pale horses in Zechariah chapter 6, chariots of horses. And then you go to Revelation 6 and you have a white horse, a black horse, a red horse, and a pale or a grizzled and bay horse. I guess you could say the similar, similar terminology there between the Hebrew and the Greek. And so then we jump over to the next chapter of Revelation. There I tore a page in my, my Bible here. It's falling apart. Sorry. Look at the first part of chapter 7. So we have Zechariah, chariots of horses. These are the four spirits that go from the presence of the Lord throughout the earth. Look at chapter 7. John said, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor in any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in our foreheads, in their foreheads. So here at the chapter 7, the beginning, we have what I think is a parenthetical. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, we have the story of creation, right? When you go to Genesis chapter 2, the author reverts back and tells the same story as it relates to man in more detail. So it's not exactly chronological. 
So Genesis 1 is the creation story in general. Genesis 2 is the creation story with an emphasis upon man given in more detail. I think what we have here in Revelation 6 and 7 is we have these judgments as the Lamb begins to open the seal. And then in chapter 7, we have a parenthetical where John kind of goes back to the beginning of this where these four angels which are given power to hurt the earth are told to wait until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. And then we see that these are the 144,000 witnesses of Israel. And then the latter part of the chapter shows this great multitude of tribulation saints that are the fruit of the preaching of these witnesses. So chapter 7 doesn't necessarily chronologically follow chapter 6. It's kind of a parenthetical that presents the ministry of these witnesses and the fruit of their ministry throughout this whole period. So it's similar to the way that Genesis chapter 2 relates to Genesis chapter 1. The reason I'm sharing this is because I believe the four angels that are told not to hurt the earth until the servants of God are sealed in Revelation chapter 7, 1 and 2 are the same agents of God that are shortly thereafter unleashed and they come bearing these riders. In Zechariah, these chariots of horses were these ministers of judgment. Chapter 7 of Revelation, we have these ministers of judgment who are told to wait. But in chapter 6, these ministers of judgment go forth. So I think there's a relationship there. I think the emphasis ought to be on the horses and not the horsemen. Because the horses are God's agents. And again, it highlights the fact that the judgments which are to befall this earth are not the wrath of men. They're not the wrath of Satan. It's the wrath of God. Antichrist, the wars, the famines, the death, it comes from God. These riders are brought in by God's agents. They don't come in of their own power. Antichrist doesn't rise of his own power. He thinks he does. He's brought in by God. All of this takes place because God wills it. And God wills it to bring Him glory. God wills it for Israel to purge them and to try them and to make a remnant white. Just as God wills for the church in this church age, trials and tribulations to purge us. Peter said that our trial, the trial of our faith, is more precious than gold. In the tribulation, we see God doing with Israel what He does with the church today in using trial and tribulation. And You know, those that reject Him are going to perish, but that remnant we'll see in Daniel in the 70 weeks prophecies and the prophecies about Antichrist that the purpose is to try Israel, to purge her and to make her white. So our focus ought to be the four horses of the apocalypse, not the four horsemen, because the agents are God's. The agents that bring the riders are gods. The riders are just riding. Usually it's a horseman that rides and drives a horse, but in this case, the horse is driving the riders. They don't need the riders to crack the reins and make them turn. They have a purpose, and that purpose is from God. Does that make any sense? Do you see how it relates there to the four spirits of the heavens in Revelation 7 as well as uh, revealed in Zechariah? So remember, these are God's agents. Not man's. Not the four horsemen. There are four horsemen. But I don't like to use the word horseman. Because that word horseman implies that the horse 
the man is controlling the horse. I like to say the four riders of the apocalypse or the four horses because the riders are passive in this sense. Maybe I'm making much ado about nothing, but I find it funny how the world always just kind of twists the emphasis just a little bit to make it man-centered. When it's not man-centered, it's God-centered. Let's look at the first seal. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. The Lamb is opening the title deed of the earth. And when these seals are opened, judgment is unleashed. So today we're going to see the first seal open. And I've got this scroll here that some of the children helped make. And uh, we're going to open this seal here. This is what I kind of believe this title deed looked like. I don't know if I can do this without ruining it. I'm probably going to have... I don't have a pocket knife on me this morning. Well, why not? I guess I should. <laughs> All right, we're going to crack this first seal. Thank you, Jim. And we're going to open it. We've opened it, and look what we have here. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The first seal, we've opened it. It brings judgment. If y'all want to pass that around and look at it, you can. John says, the Lamb opened the seal. We talked about that last time. There was a noise of thunder. It's as if you hear that thunder on a balmy summer afternoon. It's been great weather, but the storm is coming. The storm is coming for the earth. One of the four beasts said, come and see. I think that phrase, come and see, is indicative of the role of the church that's going to be in heaven during this period. Her role is to watch. Watch God work. Just like Israel was told to do when they were camped on the shores of the Red Sea. What did Moses tell the people? Stand still and behold the salvation of God. I'll fight for you. Church, come and see. Stand still, just watch. I'm going to take care of this. But John says, I saw verse 2, behold. That term there, behold, is, a bit of, is an interjection that indicates the startling character of this vision. This was startling to John. Behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. He didn't get a crown for himself, the crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Some people look at this and say that the rider on the white horse is Christ. That this is Christ. This is the same rider that we see in Revelation 19. When he comes on a white horse from heaven. Many crowns. Out of his mouth comes the Word of God. His vestures dipped in blood. Friends, this isn't Christ here in verse 2. This is an imitator. This is an imitator. When Christ comes on a white horse in Revelation 19, He does not bring famine, economic disaster, and strife in His train. He brings victory in a kingdom. This horse, this rider brings destruction, death, famine, pestilence. It's not the same. That's bad hermeneutics. 
And it, it, just sent, it, it, it just presumes that one white horse here is automatically another white horse there. It's bad hermeneutics. And we'll see by the words that are used to describe him, it can't be the same. Real quickly turn over to Revelation 19. In Revelation 6, we have the imitator, but let's just uh, read about the, the true white horse rider. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. Dan, uh, uh, Anthony, would you read that? Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Okay, this rider in Revelation 19 and the rider in Revelation 6 have one thing in common. They're both riding white horses. But they have a lot more things that are not in common. True, Christ when He returns brings judgment, brings destruction, brings wrath. But it's judgment, destruction, and wrath of another nature. It's brought about to bring a kingdom and victory for the saints of the Most High. This rider that is brought into the picture in Revelation chapter 6 brings pestilence, economic disaster, famines, earthquakes. Peace is taken from the earth. Christ brings war to make peace. The white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6 brings peace initially to make war. It's different. But there's a lot of things that are not in common. So what we have in Revelation 6 is an imitator. Notice, it says that he has a bow. A bow. Him that sat on him had a bow. Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 has a great sword coming out of his mouth, the Word of God. But this writer has a bow. A bow is a symbol of distant victory. But there are no arrows mentioned. No, no arrows. I believe this indicates power obtained not through war, not through military might, but through skillful diplomacy, through craft, through peace, through appeasement, a bloodless victory and ascendancy to power. That is the description given about the Antichrist rise to power in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8. I believe Daniel chapter 8 is talking about Antichrist. It's not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, even though Antiochus Epiphanes in Jewish history was a type of Antichrist. Because in the interpretation of that vision, the angel tells Daniel this is for the time of the end. When we read these verses, we see that this little horn comes 
to the kingdom through flattery, through craft, through diplomacy. And again, we have this mirrored in Revelation. The prophecies and visions of John agree with the prophecies and visions of Daniel. So we know they're speaking of the same thing. God's Word doesn't contradict itself. This white horse rider will come to power through peace, through diplomacy. It's funny how we hear the political leaders of the day all talking about victory through diplomacy. That's what our president thinks will achieve peace in the Middle East or achieve peace in Eastern Europe. And we see even today, even these last few days with these events taking place in the Ukraine with the Russian military and our president warning Russia that there will be cost if they send troops in and almost immediately thereafter Putin sends his troops in there. (laughs) Nobody has any respect for this country. This country is weak. Our president can speak. When what Reagan spoke, people listened. There was authority behind it. When our president today speaks, people laugh. But there's all this talk about peace through diplomacy. Well, Antichrist will achieve peace through diplomacy, but it's only short-lived. It's deceptive. So the bow doesn't indicate military victory. It indicates a bloodless victory and ascendancy to power. It also says that this rider has a crown. A crown which was given to him. Not a crown which he took. Military might. Military and war that ushers in a kingdom is a crown taken. This is a crown that was given. This man is going to be ushered into power very quickly. And all are going to go gaga over him and fall down and think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And people are going to give their allegiance to him. Kind of like what happened with our president in this country a few years ago. This man rose out of obscurity and seemed a long shot to win the Democratic nomination for president. And then boom, boom, boom. Quick, quick, quick. All of a sudden he's at the top of the game. And before we know it, this unknown senator from Illinois is the president. I think that's interesting because it indicates he's, Obama's not the Antichrist. He's too foolish. and That's not the case. Anybody that says that doesn't understand prophecy. But it's a picture of how fast things can change on the political landscape and how fast a relative unknown can ascend to power. That's happened all throughout history. If you go and study the period of the Civil War, I'm always amazed at how someone like General Grant from the Union rose out of obscurity. He was a drunk and was basically kicked out of the army. And then before you knew it, he was the head of the Union Army and was the only one able to bring victory to to President Lincoln. And then he was later president. Some of the men that have been president have come out of complete obscurity. Abraham Lincoln was one of them. These things can happen quick. And it will happen quick. Says he had a crown that was given unto him. It's funny because in the Greek language, the word used for crown here is not the same word used of the many crowns that are that are on the head of Christ when he comes in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, Christ has many crowns. Those crowns come from the Greek word diadem. You remember that that old hymn, "I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels." I always think I'm gonna say the wrong word here. Prostrate fall. Not prostate. I'm always worried I'm going to get tongue-tied. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. That word comes, it's a reference to that passage there in Revelation 19. He has many diadems. The diadem was the crown of a sovereign. A sovereign king who had authority. Who had the right to rule. 
a diadem, a crown of sovereignty. But the crown mentioned here in verse 2 of chapter 6 is not a diadem. It's the Stephanus. The Stephanus was a crown of victory. Two different things. So again, these white horse riders have less in common than they, than they have in common. Just like people claim that you know, because men and apes have similar features, opposable thumbs, certain features that are in common, then we must have come from a common ancestor. Well, the dissimilarities are so abundant, when you consider them, it makes the similarities seem virtually non-existent. I mean, if you want to talk about human DNA having certain things in common with apes, Human DNA has a lot of stuff in common with the DNA or the makeup of a banana. But we don't come from a similar source. I love how people focus on the similarities between men and apes, but don't even to try to justify a godless origin of life. But they fail to consider that an ape has never built a hospital. An ape's never discovered the cure for a disease. An ape's never developed... A car that can go from zero to 60 in two seconds. And apes never learn to speak a different language. It's ridiculous reasoning. Same thing here. People are going to fall for it and think that the white horse rider in Revelation 6 is the Messiah, never stopping to consider the differences, the imitations, the counterfeits. He has a crown of victory, a victor's crown, but it's not a crown of authority. The crown of victory is given to him because of his diplomacy and his flattery. People fall in love with him. We're going to see when we look at Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks that the crowning achievement of Antichrist is his signing of a peace treaty with Israel. And I believe the signing of this treaty is what will give Israel permission to again build their temple on the Temple Mount. And it will bring peace to the Middle East. And everybody will think, wow, this man... This is who we... Why not have a one world government? We, well, they're going to fall down and worship Him. And then in the middle of that week, He's going to break His own treaty and He's going to go in there and set Himself up as God in the temple. And then He's going to try to destroy Israel because He, as Satan's superman, knows that Christ cannot return until Israel repents. And if He destroys Israel, they won't be able to repent. But we all know that that's never going to happen. But a crown of victory... Not a crown of authority. Victory is emphasized and there is victory that brings Him to power. And there is victory for a time that will cause people to think the Bible's not true, all of this is false, and maybe those that are even sensitive to the things of God and come to Christ during the tribulation, the tribulation saints, they're going to... Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, if it were possible, even those elect will be deceived. Fortunately, that's not possible when the Holy Spirit is indwelling those that come to Christ. Victory is emphasized, but the authority is only temporary. Permanent authority comes with a diadem. The Stephanus is temporary. temporary. And then it says, he, he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is a resume of conquest. Much like resumes we've seen throughout history where conquest took place quickly. And it's amazing. Sometimes we think kingdoms are built over a huge period of years. Not necessarily the case. 
There are great kingdoms in history that were built quickly. And authority came quickly. When I think of this terminology here, He went forth conquering and to conquer. I think of various military authority figures in history. One that comes to mind is Alexander the Great, the son of Philip of Macedon. Out of obscurity, these Greek, uh, these Greek city-states came to power during the days of the Persian Empire and Philip was able to unite some of the Macedonian city-states together and he was eventually killed and his young son came to power. And in a very short amount of time, Alexander the Great, with a relatively small army compared to the size of the great Persian armies, was able to overthrow the Persian Empire and conquer the entire known world. That's why the Greek, the Hellenistic, Hellenistic Greek culture overtook the civilized world and was eventually absorbed into the Roman Empire. And we have the effects of Greek culture in our culture even today. An amazing rise to power that happened quickly. And amazingly, this rise to power of Alexander the Great was prophesied in Daniel 2. It was prophesied, Daniel prophesied it very clearly. He didn't call him by name, but Alexander was the great horn that came out of the third beast, which was the Greek Empire. That great horn was broken, and out of it four horns came. And those four horns represented the four divisions of Alexander's kingdom when he died at a young age. And then out of those four kingdoms, out of one of them would come a little horn, a type of which was the king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, about 164 B.C., but the ultimate fulfillment would be Antichrist. But Alexander the Great, from 334 B.C. to 327, so we're talking about seven years, literally conquered the entire known world. In B.C. 331 at Arbella, he and his Persian army of about 47,000 troops defeated the Persian king Darius III and his army of almost a million some people say that, that, that Persian army had a million people available. And an army of 47,000 defeated the Persians. Alexander the Great and his armies went as far as India. All, a lot of the areas where we've done ministry in northwest India and then over in Pakistan and of course in southern India, all of that came under the authority of the Greek Empire. In fact, there's people up in the area of Ladakh where, where, where Janine's going to be going. I don't remember exactly where. It may be kind of northwest of there in one of the former Soviet republics. But there are a group of people up there that have featured characteristics of a western people. Blonde hair, blue eyes. But yet they're indigenous to the area. And it's thought that these are remnants of some of Alexander's troops intermarrying with the people and it produced descendants that had traits of the Greeks. And these are like stuck way up in the Himalayas uh, in, north, in the northwestern desert part there from India. I, I just find that interesting. But this happened very quickly. In June of 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died suddenly. He was actually in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. They had conquered the Persians and took Babylon. He was in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for years and he just died suddenly. Some say it was marsh fever. Some say it was an STD. Some say it was intemperance or poison. But he was only 32 years old when he died. So from, at age 25, he began to conquer the world and at 32 he died. Napoleon had a similar story. Conquered Europe. 
Very quickly. Very quickly. There's an interesting story that's related by Josephus, the Jewish historian, concerning Alexander the Great. Um, in the fall of 332 B.C., his armies had besieged Tyre, the city of Tyre, and had conquered it. There's a prophecy about Tyre. I believe it's in Isaiah and how it would fall. And this was actually fulfilled to the detail in 332 B.C. when Alexander's armies besieged it. But at that time, Alexander left his armies and took a group of his troops and they went down to Jerusalem. And on the outskirts of the city, they were met by the high priest, Jadua, and a whole bunch of people that came out to greet him and to welcome him and to treat him favorably. And it's said that as they were standing outside the city, Alexander was moved at this welcoming party and was asked, you know, he was almost in a daze and he was asked by his compatriots, what's, what's going on? And he said, I actually saw this in a dream. I saw in a dream this man in white coming out from Jerusalem that told me I would conquer the world, that it was appointed of God, and that I was to leave these people alone and I was to let them worship their God. That Their God had appointed me to conquer the world for His purposes. So Alexander claimed to have that dream and then he saw these people. And so anyway, long story short, they were greeted and supposedly the priest... Alexander was allowed to come into the temple and offered up a sacrifice unto the God of Israel. And then the Jews were told that they would be allowed to observe their laws. They would be allowed to observe their religion and worship their God. And that Alexander's armies, though they would conquer the world and they planned to do it, would leave the Jews alone. And that every seventh year, when the land was supposed to have rest, the Jews would not be required to send tribute to the Greeks. So I just find that interesting. And while this was happening and Alexander was in the temple, it is said that the priest actually brought out the book of Daniel and showed him where he was mentioned in Daniel's prophecies from more than, two, from, from more than 200 years before. They showed him the, uh, the rise of that, those, the, that the, the belly and thighs of brass in Revelation's vision. I mean, in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. They showed him Daniel chapter 7 or where the four beasts that come up uh, out of the sea and how that third one was the Greek empire and out of that Greek empire was a, was a great horn. They showed him the... Uh, uh, I think it was in Daniel's vision of chapter 8, the vision of the ram and the, and, the, and the he goat or the goat and the ram. They showed him the ram that came from the west with the great horn. So they showed him these things and he apparently understood that he was the agents of God's prophecy and therefore treated the Jews favorably and allowed them to continue to worship God according to their customs. So some people claim that that never happened, but Josephus actually writes about it in detail. I read it this morning and I find it very interesting. But this is where you had a man rise to power very quickly and literally conquer the world in seven years. And that was long, long ago and they didn't have modern technology like they do today. So, Antichrist could come to power very quickly. In the beginning, he'll be like Alexander was toward the Jews. But he'll reveal his true colors later and go back on his word. Interesting. Like Alexander, like Napoleon, like others, even like Hitler to an extent, a sudden rise to power followed by a sudden fall 
at the climax of their power. At the climax of Alexander's power, he died. Just died at 32 years old. At the climax of Napoleon's power, he pushed too far into Russia, got greedy, and he fell. Defeated at Waterloo. Exiled to an island in the Atlantic. At the climax of Hitler's power, they were overrun. Pushed too far into Russia. It's amazing how history repeats itself. And he committed suicide. It's funny, when we went down to Argentina, an area where we went through, there's a place where the, it's a ranch out there. And they claim it's Hitler's ranch where he lived out his days and died. That he actually escaped to Argentina, faked his death. And a lot of the Nazis actually did do that. They found him down there. But there's actually a place they claim was Hitler's ranch before he died. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't think we know what really happened in a lot of historical incidents. And one day we're going to find out because God's going to unveil the great mysteries. But I think it's, it's interesting to, to see those things and wonder if what we've been fed is the truth or if we've been lied to. But just like there was a sudden fall with Antichrist, there'll be a sudden fall. He comes in bringing peace on this white rider, on this white horse. In his train is war, famine, pestilence, destruction, judgments of God. And then very quickly, his reign will come to an end. Very quickly. I've already answered my question here. If you look at the outline, you have a resume of conquest. Who is this white horse rider? I've already answered it. I believe it's Antichrist. What Daniel calls the prince that shall come. Antichrist. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about Antichrist. A lot. Throughout the book of Daniel, Isaiah talks about him. Paul talks about him. John talks about him. There's a lot. Just like the Bible has a lot to say about Messiah. You see, what I find amazing is the Jews had no excuse to not recognize Jesus Christ as Messiah. They had no excuse. Daniel pinpointed the exact number of years it would be from the commandment of Artaxerxes and Nehemiah to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince 69 weeks, 483 years. And we're going to show you later when I get into this how it was fulfilled exactly from that decree of Artaxerxes in 454 B.C., not 445 as most scholars claim, 454 B.C. He was a co-rex with his father. And he, his dealings with the Jews was all the authority of the throne. 454 B.C. until the 10th of Nisan, A.D. 30 when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The one day in His ministry when the people of Israel accepted Him as a prince. It was fulfilled exactly. 483 solar years. It was fulfilled exactly. 483 calendar years. Because it says after 69 weeks, Messiah would be cut off. On Nisan 14, A.D. 30, Jesus was crucified. He was cut off. That's exactly 483 calendar years from the decree in Nehemiah to the death of Christ. What was wrong with the Jews? Why didn't they recognize Him? There were those that did. There were those that did. They are spoken of in Daniel chapter 11. There are those like Simeon, Anna the prophetess, the wise men who may or may not have been Jews, 
the shepherds, they recognized there were people who were waiting for the consolation of Israel because they knew based on these prophecies, but the great majority of them missed it. The same can be said of Antichrist. There's no reason why the Jews shouldn't recognize Him when He comes as a false Messiah. Because it's very clearly articulated in the book of Daniel. But when He comes, they're going to miss it. And they're going to think He is the Messiah. And they're going to wake up. So it it amazes me how God's Word can be so simple. But even in its simplicity, where the plowboy can have as much understanding of God's Word as the Pope in Rome, even in its simplicity, unless your eyes are opened by God, you won't see it. People claim to be Christians and they claim to read the Bible every day and have an understanding, but there's no spiritual discernment because they're blind. That's why the Jewish people in this present time, this church age, this time of the Gentiles, you can show them these clear passages fulfilled in Jesus Christ and it's as if there's a veil over the eyes. It's the judgment of God. Isaiah 6. Even in Jesus' day, Isaiah 6 was in... Was in uh, um, was in force. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. People say, well, Jesus taught in parables to make it easier for the people to understand. Whoever says that's never read the New Testament because it clearly says in the Gospels that Jesus spoke in parables to confuse the people. That in hearing, they may not hear. In seeing, they may not see. In learning, they may not understand. But He spoke plainly to His disciples and to the ones who had a right heart. Parables were meant to confuse, to blind. Plain speech was meant to, op- to, to, to teach and to encourage and to exhort those who had a humility for God. How do you discern whether God's eye, someone's eyes are open or closed? Look at their attitude. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to have understanding in God's Word? He has to give it to you. You want Him to give it to you? Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. It's that simple. It's that simple. But the Jews did not recognize Messiah when He came. They will not recognize Antichrist when He comes even though it's clearly depicted in the Bible to where we should be able to know exactly what's taking place. That's why when Jesus talks about Him coming like a thief in the night, could happen at any time imminent, that can only be so in light of all these other prophecies if it's a reference to His secret coming for the church, the rapture. But these other things are laid out clearly. When Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, they ought to immediately know they've been deceived. But they won't. They'll sign the treaty anyway. And they'll suffer for it. But in the end, they'll wake up. Praise God, they are going to wake up. The veil will be removed. And so shall all Israel be saved. And a Messiah will come out of Zion, a deliverer. And He will rule and reign. And all those prophecies will be fulfilled. Who is this white horse rider? He is the prince that shall come. Now, Antichrist, make no mistake, is a mysterious and terrible person. He's not a system. The apostolic church, the early church fathers, they understood that Antichrist would be a person. It wasn't until about the end of the 12th century when the world was under the domination of the Roman Catholic papal system, that ecclesiastical monster, it wasn't until then that people began to think that maybe Antichrist is the papal system, the Roman Catholic system. 
And it's easy for us to stand in judgment on those reformers who lived in a day when it seemed like evil in the name of Christ was conquering the world. Israel was scattered. They weren't in their land. And I can kind of understand how some of these reformers came up with their post-millennial or amillennial theology. But we live on the other side of Israel being gathered into the land. A nation born in a day, 1948, just like it's described in Isaiah 66. We have no excuse not to take these verses literally. We have no excuse to fall into the deception of amillennialism. You see, these reformers began to question whether Antichrist was a person and began to associate it with the Catholic Church. And then they bought into the same post-millennial theology in speaking against the Catholic Church that the Catholic Church had taught from day one. But these men lived in difficult times and praise God for men like Luther and Calvin and others that rose up in dark, dark, troublesome days to preach the truth and to overthrow the iron fist of the Roman Catholic Church. But friends, Antichrist is not a person. That's a Reformation area theology, era theology, and it's not what the other early church... I'm sorry, Antichrist is, is a person. He's not a system. That's a Reformation era theology. It's not something that was held by the early church. Look real quick at 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to stop a little early here. I want to because... We want to pray about this mission trip. But let me go through here a little bit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. This tells us what Antichrist is. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? In other words, Antichrist denies that God became flesh in Jesus Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Chapter 4, verse 3. 1 John. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come. And even now already is in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world. But it itself will come. The person. Now, Judaism, Unitarianism, Atheism, Hinduism, Buddhism... They outright deny that God came in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. Hinduism teaches that Jesus actually survived the crucifixion, was resuscitated, and came to India and studied Hinduism and became a guru. They even claim He's buried up there near Ladakh. Maybe Janine can go visit the grave. I think it's in Srinagar. Srinagar is west of there. I never made it over there. What a joke. But Islam claims that Jesus didn't die, that He was replaced on the cross by someone else at the last minute. Judaism denies that Jesus was Messiah, that He was a man that died. These false religions deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's the spirit of Antichrist. But friends, as wicked as the Roman Catholic Church is, they do not deny this. Think of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. That's not denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. The Nicene Creed, Jesus is described as eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, was made man. The Catholic Church doesn't deny these things. Of course, the Jesus they've made is not the Jesus of the Bible and they've twisted so many other things. But Antichrist denies what Catholic Church 
the Catholic Church, at least in its official theology, affirms. So Antichrist is not the papal system. He's a person. I believe the papal system is described in Revelation 17. That great whore. That mystery Babylon. And we're going to get to that. But the great whore is not the beast she's riding upon. The beast is the Antichrist and the kings that give Antichrist power. They support and back the church and use that papal system to come to power, I believe. But there comes a time when Antichrist political allies betray the papal system and destroy her. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church in many ways may foreshadow Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist. The behaviors of the popes throughout history definitely foreshadow that in many ways. But the abundance of Scriptures concerning this man of sin can only be fulfilled in a person, an individual that is yet to appear. An individual that will actually embody the spirit of Antichrist in its fullness that we've seen throughout history. Not only in governments, not only in types, like Hitler in his crusade against the Jewish people, the Holocaust. Not only in the, act, the behaviors of the popes and the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church and the rise of Islam. All of, it, all of that spirit's always been here. But it's going to be embodied in a person in its fullness, not a system. It might be a pope. Antichrist might be a pope. Could be. That turns on his own church, possibly, but it's not a system. A terrible and mysterious person. Consider also number two. Antichrist, or this rider on the white horse, is not a rival or counterfeit Christ. He is an opposing Christ. That word anti, antichrist. 1 Corinthians 11 sheds light on what that means. It also sheds light on an issue that some people are very legalistic about. Because the same phrase, anti, that Greek word appears here in 1 Corinthians 11 that is used to describe antichrist in 1 John. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11.15. This is where Paul is talking about some customs in the church, about women covering their heads, and different things like that. You know, verse 13, judging yourselves is what Paul tells the church to do. Verse 16, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. These things are very clear that this is not to be a legalistic issue and that there is Christian liberty, I believe. But look at what he says in verse 15, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given her for, the word for there is the word anti in the Greek, for a covering. The word anti means instead of. If a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her because her hair is given her instead of a covering. In place of a covering. So the long hair is the covering. I don't want to go too much into that. But it's that concept of instead of. Think of Antichrist not as merely counterfeit Christ, but instead of Christ. Opposing Christ at every single avenue. Instead of. It's opposing. He is not trying to be Christ in terms of being exactly like Christ and just stealing the glory belonging to Christ. He wants to oppose Christ. Just like Satan opposes God. 
What would you think... Have any of you all ever read the Satanic Bible? <laughs> Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. I've looked at it. But you know what the primary commandment given to the followers of Satan in the Satanic Bible is? It's not worship Satan. It's four words. Do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want to do. See, it's not just about Satan trying to be Christ and be a Messiah. It's Satan opposing everything. The Bible doesn't say do what you will. The Bible says love the Lord God. And Him only shall you worship. The Satanic Bible, do whatever you want to do. It opposes God. In that same vein, Antichrist opposes Christ. There are some contrasts. I know I'm running a little bit, but I've got to get to this stopping point. There are some contrasts I want you to consider between Christ, the true white horse rider, and the imitator in Revelation 6. We've identified as Antichrist, the man of sin, Satan's Superman. Christ comes from above. John 6. Antichrist, it tells us in Revelation 11, ascends from, from the pit. Comes from below. Not a counterfeit that just simply comes from above like Christ, but actually comes from below. Christ came in His Father's name. Antichrist, Jesus tells us in John 5, will come in His own name. Christ humbled Himself. Antichrist will exalt Himself. Christ was despised. Antichrist will be admired. Christ was exalted, but Antichrist will be cast down to hell. Christ came to do His Father's will. Antichrist comes to do His own will, which is the same will as that of Satan. Christ came to save. Antichrist comes to destroy. Christ is the good shepherd, but Zechariah 11 tells us Antichrist is the idle shepherd. The evil shepherd. Christ is the true vine. Revelation 14 describes Antichrist as the vine of the earth. Earthy. Man-centered. Christ is the truth. Antichrist is the lie. Christ is the holy one. Antichrist is the lawless one. Christ was a man of sorrows. Antichrist is described as a man of sin. Christ is the Son of God. Antichrist is the Son of perdition. Those are the exact words Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus uses that exact name, Son of Perdition, to describe someone. Who was it? Judas, Judas Iscariot. Do you think the two are re related? I think so. We'll get into that later. Christ is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness according to 1 Timothy 3.16? Great is the mystery of godliness. Not He appeared in a body like modern versions say, but God was manifest in the flesh. That's the mystery of godliness. That King James reading right there which agrees with the Greek witness, by the way. That's another place where the modern versions really mess up and steal the deity of Jesus Christ as 1 Timothy 3.16. That's a, another point, another, another issue. But Christ is the mystery of godliness. The mystery is that God actually became human flesh not for His own purposes, but to save others. Totally unlike the gods of mythology. The gods and goddesses of Hinduism that do what they do, that take on the form of human flesh for a temporary period of time to serve their own lust and pleasures. Christ took on human flesh eternally to bring redemption to men. The mystery of godliness. God in the flesh. But Antichrist is the mystery, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, of iniquity. 
Christ is the incarnation of God. Antichrist is the incarnation of Satan. The mystery of iniquity. Just like the mystery of godliness was God becoming man, the mystery of iniquity is Satan becoming man. Fully. Incarnation. So we have a contrast here. There's also some similarities that make it a counterfeit. Christ rose from the dead. Antichrist will rise from the dead. He has a wound, a deadly wound which is healed. And that might be what causes the earth to worship Him. Maybe He'll be assassinated and lay in state and then just get up. But there will be some sort of resurrection. Only temporary though. Christ was God incarnate. Antichrist is Satan incarnate. Christ has two comings. He came once and He'll come a second. Antichrist has been here before. We'll talk about that later. Antichrist has been here before and He's coming a second time. Christ returned to heaven in the flesh. He didn't die and go to heaven. Christ rose from the dead and went to heaven in the flesh. Antichrist will be cast into hell in the flesh. You know the two righteous men, Enoch and Elijah, who were translated directly to heaven without dying? Did you know there will be two men that are translated directly to the lake of fire without dying? Antichrist and the false prophet. They're not going to die to go to the lake of fire. Everybody else will, but not them. They're going to be cast straight in there in the flesh. Christ is the second person in the divine trinity. Antichrist is the second person in the satanic trinity. There is a satanic trinity. It's an opposition to the triune God. Not just a counterfeit. Satan is opposing God the Father. Antichrist opposes God the Son. And the false prophet opposes God the Spirit. But they'll all be destroyed because it is not good versus evil. It is not a cosmic dualism. It's God on His throne. Let all the earth keep silent. Let all the heavenly supernatural beings keep silent. God is on His throne. Now, we, we know what this writer is and I'm going to conclude with this. If you guys will take this outline, the rest of it, I think you will find some interesting things to study in the ensuing weeks in which I'm away on the mission field. If you want to learn more about Antichrist, we don't only learn about him here in Revelation. There are different people throughout Scripture, five in particular, who had four views of Antichrist. Details about how he could be recognized. Jesus had a foreview in John 5.43. He told the Jews that I come in my Father's name and you don't receive me, but another one will come in his own name. You'll receive him. In other words, you're going to fall for it and believe he's the Messiah. You, Isaiah also has a foreview. Okay? In Isaiah, Antichrist is referred to as the Assyrian, the wicked or the wicked one, the king of Babylon, the Assyrian. Now, consider Isaiah and Daniel for a moment. Isaiah receives a series of visions throughout his book. These visions are progressive revelation that build one on top of another to reveal unto us the person and character of Jesus the Messiah. That's the main point of Isaiah. Daniel, on the other hand, receives a series of visions progressive revelation that builds upon itself to reveal the specifics concerning the character and role of Antichrist. 
So Isaiah's main point is to reveal the character of Messiah. And then there are things said in there about Antichrist. But Daniel's, the point of Daniel's visions, the main thrust of them is to reveal the person of Antichrist with details also concerning the Messiah. So the emphases are different. But Isaiah does have a foreview of Antichrist. Daniel has a foreview. There's a lot in the book of Daniel that reveals Antichrist. He's the little horn of the fourth beast in Daniel 7. He's the little horn of the he-goat in Daniel 8. He's the king of fierce countenance. He's the prince that shall come, Daniel 9. He's the willful king, Daniel 11. Paul has a foreview of Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's the man of sin, the son of perdition, the mystery of iniquity. And then John has a foreview. Not only this white horse rider in Revelation 6-2, but also the beast out of the sea. Revelation 13. The scarlet beast that carries the whore for a period of time. Revelation 17. His reign is described in Daniel 9 and Revelation 13. It's a seven year reign from the time of the peace treaty until the time of His overthrow by Christ. And then His doom, of course, is spelled out in those Scriptures. So, that will give you something to study and think about. And when I get back in several weeks, Lord willing, we can look at some of these other horses in more detail and we'll just get in to the, this period of tribulation when Christ is opening the title deed of the earth and preparing it to be read. When He returns, it will be completely open, ready for public reading to prove that He is the one that has the rightful claim to the tenant possession of this earth, not the one who usurped it from Adam, which is Satan. Does anybody have any questions about this? I want to look at Daniel 70 weeks before we actually go much further in Revelation because I want you to see how this amazing prophecy was fulfilled related to Christ and how it telescopes across the church age to the period of tribulation because its focus is on Israel. God's plan for Israel. God's plan for the church was something different. So there's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And there are things that Daniel said would happen during that gap. And they were fulfilled exactly as it says. It says that after 69 weeks, Messiah would be cut off. And the people of the prince that shall come will destroy the city. That happened in A.D. 70. So you know what that tells us? Antichrist is related to the Roman Empire. The identity of the fourth world kingdom wasn't understood until after A.D. 70 because it was the Romans that destroyed the city after the 69 weeks. It was the Romans that did it. So now we know that the fourth Gentile kingdom is connected with the Roman Empire, a revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire never technically ceased to exist. It just evolved. It was absorbed. Just like Greece... Babylon was overthrown by Persia. Persia was overthrown by Greece. Greece more was absorbed into Rome. Rome was absorbed into the Roman Catholic Church and Western civilization. And Western civilization has ruled the earth since the days of the Roman Empire. It's never stopped. It's never stopped. Persia wasn't Western civilization. It was Eastern, Oriental. 
Greece was Western, and then it was absorbed into Roman, and Western civilization has always been the case. So the Roman Empire, in a sense, still exists. It's just not called that. The politics we have in this country, a lot of it's modeled after the Roman Empire. The emperors weren't kings in the sense that we think of kings or monarchies. Sometimes there were multiple emperors that had equal authority at the same time. They both, or three, one time there was four. They all had equal authority. They all wore the purple. It wasn't exactly the same. But all of these things were fulfilled. So I want to talk about that. Some people say the 70 weeks were fulfilled in Jesus and that the one who makes the treaty was Jesus and that all of this was done by A.D. 70. But that prophecy tells us six things will, will happen. That this won't be fulfilled until six things happen. And none of those things have happened. Everlasting righteousness has not been ushered in. An end to Israel's iniquity has not been ushered 